0: One of the things that I appreciate about uh, Keith that i uh, I've been trying to figure out how to share this this morning um, is that he's been walking all along. It hasn't been a last minute hustle up. let me catch up. let me engage the bride now that i'm now that I've found out I've got cancer and um thank you babe. now that I've found out I've got cancer and you know I may be dying oh, let me hustle up and go engage a, a body of believers and see if I can get some answers and see if I can become acquainted with my Lord. And that, um, some of the things that I've been dealing with lately as a pastor have been the things that I shared in the elder ordination. A couple of Greek words that are true to pastoring and eldering. Agonizomai. If you think about that a minute, you can put that word together and realize that that's where agonize comes from. And the other word is gumnazo. That's where gymnasium comes from, that it's hard work. <laughs> and I've been especially bogged down in the agony and hard work and the frustration of people that want to hustle up at the last minute and try and engage God right when there's crisis. Instead of walking with Him all along, instead of being prepared well in advance, for not if those things come, but when they come, that you're prepared to bring glory to God in the moment. One of the things I've enjoyed about Keith and Stephanie is that you know, for the last year and a half or so, really ever since they've been in Greenville, they've been here and they've been engaging and they've been part of this body. And Keith is set right there where Kenny is sitting and he's asked questions on Wednesday nights and he's in dialoguing about the word and God has prepared him for this moment. And God has prepared Stephanie for this moment. And um, I just urge you to realize that, man, there's an enemy out there that wants us bog- to bog us down in the trivial. There really is. There's an enemy out there that wants us to have More land, promotion, a better job, uh, better stuff, more recreation. You know, all this stuff and all these activities and all these things that really, when they're passed through the fire of what matters, they will be burned up. And the thing that will matter are the things of engaging the bride and engaging the word and knowing this Lord that we're going to spend eternity with. Like he's not a stranger to us when we meet him face to face. And I, I urge you to realize there's an enemy out there and to just pray for the grace and mercy to be engaged in the things that matter. And um, that's, that's where the agony comes from for me, both in myself, because I haven't arrived, but in a people and just saying, man, pay attention, pay attention. There's things that matter and this matters. In this moment, in this time today, the devil wants this time to be routine and mundane. And uh, I just urge you to pray if you haven't prayed already. If you don't pray before Sunday mornings, Lord, make me attentive this morning or tomorrow morning. Make tomorrow matter in my life. Please make me available to the Word and to the things that will matter in eternity. I urge you to do that right this moment and then start doing that in the future. Prepare for corporate worship time. Don't just stumble into something and hope that you're going to have this life change. But prepare your heart for it and ask the Lord to, by grace and mercy, to change you. Go to John chapter 11. If you, have a, if you don't have your Bible, you can use the Pew Bible there. It's on page 898 of your Pew Bible. And it, if, you, if you have the English Standard Version, chances are that page number works for you as well. And if you don't have a Bible, the blue one in, in the seat back in front of you is now yours. So put your name in it. Don't be afraid to be carrying around a blue Bible. Nobody will think that you stole it because I'm telling you, take it. Please, you'll need this today. This is where we're going to spend the most of our morning. Okay, so grab that, put your name in the front, turn to page 898. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. Therefore, because Christ has raised a man from the dead who's been dead four days, and because many believed in Christ, the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. John, the writer of the book of John, then goes on to comment on what Caiaphas has just unwittingly and unknowingly prophesied. Verse 51, now he, being Caiaphas, did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's you and me. We're the children of God who are scattered abroad over space, not just the geography at the moment, but over time. Here 2,000 years later, we're scattered abroad abroad. And that this work, this thing that Caiaphas is prophesying about is speaking of us. So let's make this personal. Let's climb in there and realize that he's speaking of us. What we've done the last few weeks is realizing that this is speaking of us is we've surrendered to it. We said, okay, let's just explore what Caiaphas has said. Let's get acquainted with this sacrifice. Let's learn about the nature of the sacrifice and then the nature of if that sacrifice is death, which is what I'll speak about in a moment, the nature of that death. So that's what we've been doing the last few weeks. We've just let this passage really take us on a journey of the death. Rather than just saying, okay, yeah, that's speaking of Christ's death, let's move on to the next passage of Scripture, we camped out. So a few weeks ago, first of all, we considered what is the nature of the sacrifice. Through the lens of the book, the dusty old cobweb-filled book, Leviticus, we looked at this sacrifice and we realized that the nature of the sacrifice is death. That when a holy God decides to dwell with an unholy people, that something is going to die. That holiness must be purchased, and it will be purchased with blood and nothing less. So for a holy God to dwell with an unholy people, you and me, something's going to die. And if that something is not us, then it's going to be something else. And in our case, it is Christ alone. Okay, so we looked at first the nature of the sacrifice and realized that it was death, nothing less. And then we considered the nature of that death. And a couple weeks ago, we considered that it was substitutionary. We again looked at this passage through the lens of Leviticus and realized that day by day, time after time, year by year, continually, people were bringing sacrifices to the tabernacle. Here's an unblemished lamb. Here's an uh, uh, unblemished goat or a bull. Let me bring this thing down to the tabernacle. And I'll bring it to the entrance to the tabernacle. I'll grab my knife. And then I'll put my hand on the head of that unblemished, innocent. And I will slit its throat. And then in placing my hand on the head of that animal, I'm saying, this animal is my substitute. This animal taking my place. And in fact, the sins that I'm guilty of, The things that I have done that have been an abomination to a holy God, I'm placing on this critter. And this thing, when it is either burned or sublimated or or eaten by maybe by the priest, depending on the type of sacrifice, that this animal will take my place. That the nature of that death of Christ is substitutionary. That in essence, what Christ did, the one who cast the stars, the one who scooped the oceans and piled up the mountains, is he knelt. In front of wicked Ben and wicked you. And he said, put your wicked vile hand on my graceful, innocent head. And here, let me hand you the knife. I will be your substitute. That's in essence what Christ has done for us. The nature of the death is it was substitutionary. And then last week we considered that even further the nature of that death is it is propitiary. Propitiary is a word that... I I got the thousand-yard stare when I I said it for the first time last week. And I understand, it's not a familiar word. It's not one we use every day. But it's not an academic lame word that some um, brainiac made up. It's in the Bible. And the word, if we want to eat that word, if it's in the Scripture, which we should want to eat it, if we eat it, we find that it means wrath-absorbing. That the nature of that death is that there's an angry God. And that angry God is holy. And he's just, and that's where his anger comes from, because we're not holy and just. We're sinful, and that he's rightfully angry. In order to to maintain his righteousness and his holiness and his justice, that something must happen and that his action comes from his wrath. What we realized last week is that, that what Christ has done for us is Christ has absorbed the wrath that was due for you and for me. Keith McCord, the fact that he's walked with us for the last year and a half, the fact that he sat right here through the He Stinketh series, nine weeks of We Stinketh. He told me a couple weeks ago, this is before he found out that his body was not responding, but he would say the same thing right now. He said, I deserve worse than this. I deserve worse than cancer. The fact that I've had 30 years of life, the fact that I have a wife and a baby, The fact that I am in fellowship with the Creator through the finished work of Christ is far more than I deserve. That's a man that is acquainted with propitiation. That's a man that realizes that what he's due is God's wrath. The fact that he had any life at all and the fact that he has eternal life through the finished work of Christ is by grace alone. That man has visited the reality of propitiation. And today... Where we're going is to consider further the nature of this sacrifice, that it was and is perfect. We're going to spend two Sundays on this message. I've been so bogged down and so overwhelmed this week in realizing that I really had about two hours worth of message to try and share this morning. And it occurred to me last night, I was sitting out on the back porch in the starlight, which there weren't many stars, but I was sitting out there and I was thinking, Lord, how am I going to do this? And he said, cut it in half. I didn't hear his voice. I didn't, he didn't say it. You know, the clouds didn't part. But he said, just make it a two-part sermon. So I said, okay. So this is the first part this morning. Turn to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. <clears throat> Let me see if I can give you a page number in your pew Bible. That is... Um, page 88 in your pew bible if you've been here the last few weeks and you've had a chance to look through this lens of leviticus with us if you haven't then i urge you to go back and listen to the previous sermons you know take two or three hours it may be three or four sermons in there take two or three hours over the course of the next couple weeks it's online or you can get a hard copy of it out there on the table on a cd Lots of you drive into Dallas and places like that, or you go on a trip, listen to it. Listen to it and eat Leviticus, because that's a lot of where we're coming from today, is you must have eaten Leviticus to appreciate where we're going today. But I want to acquaint you, if I can, just for a moment, with what Leviticus is about. It's a book about death. It's explaining how a holy God can live with an unholy man. That's where we left the end of the book of Exodus, is God is dwelling with his people. And the book of Leviticus is, how's God going to do that? There's a bunch of things that are going to die, and here's what's going to die, and here's how it's going to die, and here's how how you're going to engage me, and here's the purpose of this detailed book about all these things, about all these things, about how they're going to die. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. All this detail, all these sacrifices, all this ritual is so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean, and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. That's the purpose of the book of Leviticus, to help the nation of Israel distinguish between the holy and the unclean, and the holy and the profane, and the clean and the unclean. And the fact that we haven't eaten Leviticus and practiced the the work of it for the 1,500 years that the nation of Israel did means that we have to work to consume it. But what the nation of Israel had is they had 1,500 years of realizing the distance between them and God. Uh Uh-oh, I understand why things have to die. Because he's so holy and because I'm so not. I read a couple things this week that I'll share with you. One was uh, a guy named Al Mohler, who's president of Southern Seminary, put out an article online on Newsweek website or something like that. And uh, basically saying that we need to have conversation and that for the Christian, that conversation source is the scripture. That that is God revealed. If we want to have a reliable source, then that must be the starting point for our conversation. Man, you would have thought that he just threw a grenade out for the responses that he got. I mean, the world lashed back. I saw the world from a point of view that I haven't seen in in a long time. But here's what one guy said, a guy named Brian Hruska. He said, I must confess, I've always wondered what theologians study for years on end. Any honest look at the Bible must start at the beginning. Okay, good. So far, Brian, good. And it's just the strangest of fiction. That's what he says. I sat on the couch with my wise young children and cherry-picked from the book of Leviticus. Not a good book to cherry-pick from. Okay, that's my commentary. He didn't say that. I sat on the couch with my wise young children and cherry-picked from the book of Leviticus. I couldn't help but to laugh at the numerous punishments of death our great one recommended for various, he put in quotation, crimes. Literature it is. Divine revelation I certainly hope it's not. Then he goes on to say, Please read Sam Harris. He's my hero. I don't know who Sam Harris is, but I don't imagine that he saves the next little article that I read, this is just a couple weeks ago in the Dallas Morning News from the arts, uh, actually I think it was the religion section. This guy named David Plotz has decided to read the Bible and to blog about it, about that. Uh, and you can read his, his dialogue, how that's coming on slate.com. But they apparently they, did some, they asked him some questions about how it was going. I think the guy is a Jewish... Background, but not really a believer. He just wants to understand, the, wants to read the Bible. Here's a question they asked him What has disappointed you? And here's his response To read the Old Testament the way I'm reading it, you have to be disappointed sometimes in God's behavior. God is very capricious, constantly describing himself as merciful and forgiving, but yet not merciful. God is constantly killing innocents and demanding the murder of innocents in a way that's extremely troubling. It sounded like he did some cherry-picking, too. Listen to what else. They asked him another question. What did you think of the chapters on Jewish law? He says, most of them are pretty boring. Are there ritual laws, which nobody particularly cares about anymore, but they're also invocations of behavior towards the poor, towards widows, parents to children and children to parents, how you treat the blind and the deaf, how judges must, must behave, what is justice? Those are as beautiful and persuasive today as they were 3,500 years ago. So for David plots, that's really just kind of a moral message. You know, God is not really a God that I like that much because he's capricious in his anger. He's kind of wild-eyed and he just, I'm going to kill you and I, I'm going to spare you and it, it has no rhyme or reason according to to uh, uh, Brian Kruska, and according to David Plotz, he's just kind of a disappointment. You know, but there's a pretty good moral message in there. The thing that these last few weeks have done for us as we've looked through the lens of Leviticus at this passage in John 11 is if we knew David or Brian, we could say, Brian, let me sit down with you. First of all, read all of Leviticus, don't cherry pick it. Read all of Leviticus and maybe read a few verses before where God is dwelling with a people among all peoples of the world, or he dwells with Israel. Okay, so let's start there. Read all of that. And then let's go to John 11, where it was prophesied by the high priest that year that Christ would die for the nation and for the people and for the children of God scattered abroad. And then, Brian, or why do I keep forgetting your name? David, let's go to the book of Hebrews. That's where we're going today, all right? Turn to the book of Hebrews. Let me get you a page number here. Hebrews chapter 8, and a page number in your pew Bible or your new blue Bible is page 1003, okay? Now, if you don't write in your Bible, please start today. It's not... um, I don't know what the word it's not bad to do that. Okay, this just is just paper and leather or pleather and ink. Okay? Write in it. Write in it. Scribble, make make comments, circle things, words that, that stick out to you. And in John, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter eight, verses one through, or excuse me, chapters eight through ten is where we're going this morning. Man, that's part of the reason I've been kind of worried too because how do I preach three chapters of scripture? I don't know how to do that. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read these three chapters of scripture and what I ask you to do is to just listen, pull out your pen, circle words, scribble, make pictures, do whatever you have to do to surrender to the scripture that's about to be shared in three chapters of Scripture. Really, what this is, these three chapters, this is a man that's preaching about the sacrifice of Christ through the lens of Leviticus. It's like he's preached the message this morning already. Now, I'm going to have to do some conversion there to where we can eat it, to where we can dine on it, but I want to say right up front that he's already preached the message, and that's why I'm willing and able and game and eager, e- even eager, to read three chapters of Scripture. Okay, so climb into it. Chapter 8, the book of Hebrews. Now, here's some things I want you to pay attention to before I begin. Circle words that have to do with time markers. Okay, like continually, or day by day, or time after time, or again and again, or once. (laughs) Circle words that have to do with time markers. Circle words that have to do with perfect, what's perfected, and what seems to be imperfect. Circle phrases that just seem to stick out to you. Circle things that seem like they're some sort of pattern. Circle those things, underline them, and chances are we're going to discover the same things here in a moment as I draw them out. Okay, starting in chapter eight. Now the main point in what has been said is this we have such a high priest. This is being Christ, this is high priest is Christ, who has taken his seat. Pay attention to his posture. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for sea, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. As I continue to read, to kind of help you climb into the imagery of this old covenant and new covenant, Just think of the Old Covenant imagery being the sacrificial system. Okay, that's only one element of the Old Covenant. It's an expression of worship in the Old Covenant. But just try and surrender to Leviticus chapter 1 through 5, the guilt offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, and then chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. Try and surrender to that baggage, to that cumbersome system, and appreciate that being the the expression of the Old Covenant. And then the New Covenant being the work of Christ, the cross, and the empty tomb. So when you see old covenant, new covenant, you see obsolete, you see perfect, see them through those lenses of a sacrificial system in the old covenant and the work of Christ in the new covenant. For if that first covenant, the sacrificial system being an expression of that, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second covenant. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and every one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. This is a, just a little snapshot description of the layout of the tabernacle as Moses was directed to build it. Very detailed instructions. Okay, This is just a little snapshot. The writer of the book of Hebrews, actually you can hear, if you listen close, you can hear affection for these details. You can hear the writer of Hebrews having affection for the old sacrificial system and for the layout of the temple because he can see it in his mind's eyes. He's going through it, but he's just reminding the reader. But listen. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded in the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He'd like to, but that's not the point. He's just reminding them of the details of the tabernacle. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually... "...entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience." since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But, three-letter word that matters. Thankfully, this passage of Scripture doesn't end right here. It's been talking about the old covenant and been talking and even hearkening back with great affection. Man, I remember the way the tabernacle was laid out. Well, wasn't that great, how Aaron went in there. And there's Aaron's staff right there that budded. And there's the jar of manna. And oh, the mercy seat, how glorious. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who've been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more! Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who've been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, or you could replace that, and some ESV actually says a will. For where a covenant is, or a will, there must of necessity be a death of the one who made it. For a covenant or will is valid only when men are dead. For it's never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with, with the blood. And accordingly to the law, or according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place, ...year by year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Chapter 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, the sacrificial system, since that is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first the sacrificial system he takes away the first in order to establish the second his work by this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all now if you've been confused by this couple of chapters worth of reading in a very difficult book that's okay i've read it about 300 times and i do the same thing i'm sitting my head is swimming and I've, been, I've had the beauty and benefit of bathing in this for weeks. So I understand if you're, if you're swimming right now. Let me bring you back down. Let me bring you back to the point. It's in these next two verses. Remember I told you, and it's, it's even said a couple verses before. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Let's understand that, and you'll see that in these next two verses. He takes away verse 11 in order to establish verse 12. That's the point of this whole three chapters that I'm reading to you. You might be saying, well, why don't you just get to the point? Because I want us to bathe in these whole three chapters, okay? Because I'm in charge this morning while I'm talking, so I make the decisions, okay? So he takes away verse 11 in order to give us and establish verse 12. Listen, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He takes that away, and then he gives us verse 12. But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying... This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Man, I wrote in my Bible right next to that a big fat yes with exclamation marks. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Don't even try to make an offering for sin. Because basically, it says that Christ's work was not enough. Ah, Christ, I appreciate you sacrificed on the cross, but I think I got something to offer. I think I can partner with you, and I'll see if I can atone for some of my own sins. Guess what? You can't do it. Okay. Here's what I'm going to do in the next few minutes. I needed to read all three of these chapters because we're going to come back in and we're going to take little tiny snapshots. I want to show you three parallels between the work of Christ and the old thing that was, or excuse me, the sacrificial system. That old thing that was replaced and the work of Christ. I must show you these parallels because in seeing these parallels, you will see the perfections of the work of Christ. If you don't appreciate what is being replaced, you cannot appreciate the replacement. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Just a snapshot. First of all, thank you so much, writer of Hebrews, for giving us these three chapters because you're going to see some awesome things. First of all, chapter 8, verse 5. I'm going to read verse 4 just for the sake of context. Now, if he were on earth, that's being Christ, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Okay, the gifts being the subject here for this next phrase. Who serve a copy and shadow Of the heavenly things. The gifts of the sacrificial system, that that sacrifice system, according to the law, is a shadow. Okay, turn to chapter 10, verse 8. Excuse me, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things... See, that 1,500-year lesson was a lesson in shadow. Anybody that knows anything about shadows realizes that a shadow is there only because there's something nearby that has some form and some substance. But you're thankful for the shadow because it keeps you from bumping your toe, but you will never bump your toe on the shadow because it's not form and it's not substance. And that 1,500-year lesson for the nation of Israel was a shadow. Okay, And it's actually described here in chapter 8, Verse 13, it's described here now because of the work of Christ in chapter 8, verse 13. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. That 1500 year lesson of Leviticus has now been made obsolete by the finished work of Christ. That may not matter to us because we did not take animals back and forth to the tabernacle every day, all day long. We didn't see a gecko climb onto our pot in the kitchen and go, "Ah oh, man, I'm off to the pot store again. We didn't have to deal with the cumbersome baggage of the sacrificial system. But to hear now that it, oh, it it's obsolete, thank you. Something powerful must have happened. Something has changed this shadow. Into something, or something has replaced this shadow. Let's see what that is. Chapter 9. Verse 11, here's the substance. If the sacrificial system was shadow, here's the form that casts that shadow. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own Blood, he entered the holy place once for all. That's form. That's substance. Having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who've been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh shadow, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? substance. That's Form. That's what the shadow should have pointed. This fifteen hundred years lesson should have pointed the nation Israel to. That's what it should point us to. We can appreciate the form and the substance better only when we've realized that there's a shadow there too, and we've appreciated it for what it is. That's the first thing. Secondly, turn to Hebrews chapter eight, again verses four and five. The first thing, the first parallel was that in the sacrificial system, that that was shadow. And in the work of Christ, there's form and substance. Okay, here's the next thing. In the sacrificial system, chapter 8, verse 4 and 5. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy. That's the other word I want to look at. We just looked at the word shadow. The other word I want to look at is the word copy. Now turn to chapter 9, verse 23. Chapter 9, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. If you've done any, any research, any study on the tabernacle, you realize that the tabernacle and the temple was actually a layout. It was a mock-up and a copy of the true heavens. Okay, if you, the, the Holy of Holies was like a layout, a mock-up of the throne room itself with the altar and the, or the, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat serving almost as like a throne where the, the presence of the Lord dwells above it. It's a mock-up of the throne room. But it's a mock-up. It's a copy. It's not the real deal. And that these in the sacrificial system, these priests entered into a mock heaven. And how did they enter? Chapter 9, verse 25. Chapter 9, verse 25. Here's how they were able to enter. This is speaking of Christ here. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest. Now, this is the earthly high priest. As the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. That's the shadow. That's the imperfect. That's the obsolete. Is that these priests were entering a mock heaven with the blood of another. Now, compare that to chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. We read it before, we're going to read it again. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves or the blood of another, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In the old covenant, in the sacrificial system, in the old way, in the obsolete, in the shadow, there was shadow, and the priest entered into a mock heaven by the blood of another. But through the work of Christ, there's substance, and there is the high priest, the ultimate high priest, that enters the true throne room by his own blood. That's the difference between the imperfect and the perfect. Now, the third and last thing we're going to look at. I want to look at the busyness of the old system. The busyness of the sacrificial system. Turn to chapter 9, verse 6. I asked you to pay attention to time markers. Day by day, year by year, things like that. I asked you to pay attention to those. I hope you did, and if you didn't, we're still going to tease those out. I want you to pay attention to the busyness Of this system. And I don't mean B-U-S-I-N-E-S. I I mean B-U-S-Y-N-E-S. Or two S's, I don't know. (laughs) Busyness. Okay, pay attention to the busyness of the sacrificial system. Chapter 9, verse 6. This is just so awesome. Man, as I began to pay attention to what the writer of Hebrews was saying, this next point, this contrast will rock you if you'll pay attention. If you kind of tuned out right now, man, tune back in. I'm begging you, tune back in. Forget lunch. It's not going anywhere. (laughs) Tune back in. You may be also sitting here saying, man, I ain't gotten anything up to now. I'm kind of ready to go, you know. This is a little bit over my head. Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. Just pay attention to this next point. Get this next point. You'll walk away with something that will wreck you. Okay, check this out. Chapter 9, verse 6. Now, when these things have been so prepared, he's speaking of the old system, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. That word, continually. Another word that's used in ESV says, regularly. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer, continually, Thank you. Okay, that's the first descriptor, time descriptor of the old system. It's a continual thing, it's happening all the time. That people were, man, you imagine you go make a sacrifice, you're walking home, somebody sneezes on you. Man, Bummer! I need to go get another animal, another unblemished lamb, and I'm back off to the tabernacle. It's a continuous thing. And imagine the priest going in and out of the tabernacle, making those sacrifices. They come to the entrance. Here he is again. Ben is back. What happened to you, dude? Did you sin or somebody sneezed on you? Somebody sneezed on you. Okay, well, continually, let's sacrifice that animal again. I'll see you later on today. It's a busy place, and it's going on continually. Look at chapter 9, verse 25. Nor was it that he, Christ, would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year. Chapter 10, verse 1. By the same sacrifice which they offer continually year by year. Chapter 10, verse 3. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. The old system, there's continually, there's year by year. In chapter 9, verse 26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often. That's another word that we haven't met there. And there's a, in, in the ESV, it says repeatedly. So the character of the old system so far is continually, regularly, year by year, often, and repeatedly. Chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily. Every priest stands daily. And then it goes on to say ministering and offering time after time. The thing that struck me as I began to pay attention to the time markers in these three chapters is this. All that blood and all that sacrifice and sins are not taken away. All that effort and all that work Man, there's some good Jews that it must have been... Their their heritage and the legacy of their family was being faithful 1,500 years. They're there every day or every other day. Man, i got to go back to the tabernacle and make another sacrifice. All that blood, all that busyness, all that continually, regularly, year by year, often, repeatedly, daily, time after time. And yet it will not take away sins. This is what occurred to me. That if Leviticus chapter 1 through 5... The guilt offerings, the sin offerings, the burnt offerings, the peace offerings, the grain offerings. And if Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement and all that detail and all that ritual, if that can't take away sins, nothing on earth can. That's what occurred to me. If that can't take away sins, nothing can. There's no religion on earth. There's no devout practice on earth. I mean, it may be like Leviticus chapters 1 through 5, but it's the same message. It cannot take away sin. There's nothing that we can do. There's no amount of attendance that we can have at our local church. We could be there every time the doors are open, yet it won't take away our sin. We can give sacrificially, yet it won't take away our sin. We can be nice to our neighbor. We can help out with uh, Hope Clinic or the Pregnancy Clinic. We can help out with all these benevolence opportunities yet they won't take away sin. If Leviticus chapters 1 through 5 and chapter 16 will not take away sin, nothing can. Now here's the contrast. Here's the contrast. Chapter 7. Chapter 7 of Hebrews. We didn't read here, but it stands alone as being sufficient in contrast. Chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 26 for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest holy innocent undefiled separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did because this he did once for all when he sacrificed himself Do you see the contrast there? Is it just beautiful to me? Is it just seem perfect for me? That 1,500 years of devout practice and a sacrificial system does not take away sins, but by one single act in the person and work of Christ that they're taking away? Thank you so much for the language of Hebrews. Once for all. Turn to chapter 9, verse 12. I'm going to read verse 11 for the sake of context, too. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Turn to chapter 9, beginning in verse 25. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Y'all, I know this is a different message. <laughs> I know some messages are a lot more practical. Man, you can see the imagery. Oh, man, cool story. And then some of them you've got to work for. This is one of those you've got to work for. You've got to work for. But if there's any image I want to leave you with, I want to leave you with this image. Don't turn here. You can mark these passages down. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purifications for sins, he sat down. He sat down. Chapter 8 verse 1. Now, the main point and what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat. Chapter 10, verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down. Chapter 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down. If you walk away with any image, if you're tired, man, just get this image. If you walk away with any image, walk away with the image of Christ sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father. That's the posture of triumph. And that's the posture of completion. When he sits down, that is the physical manifestation of the last words that he said on this earth from the cross. What did he say? He said, it is finished. And he sat down. Now, if you're like me, you're a so what asker. I ask so what. I mean, I do. We should be asking that at this point. Man, that's cool. I appreciate those parallels between the old covenant and the new. I appreciate those parallels between the sacrificial system and the work of Christ. That's pretty crazy. I mean, how continually, year by year, daily, time after time, and then in Christ, once for all, um, one sacrifice, he sat down. Man, that rocks my world. That's pretty cool. I don't really have a so what for that, but that's pretty cool. Let me give you a so what. This is exhortation. Okay, That so far was exposition of three chapters of Hebrews. That's hard to do. I hope you got some of that. Here's exhortation. Okay, Here's what we should do with that. Enjoy his perfect sacrifice. Oh, is that all? Yeah, that's all. That's what we're called to do. Enjoy his perfect sacrifice. Consider that his work was substance. His work was form. His work was meat. Consider his work As not being shadow, being the opposite of shadow, substance. I don't know if that's an opposite, but being something that's next to shadow, substance. And say, man, I enjoy that. I like that. That motivates me. Here's another thing. Consider his entrance into a true heavenly throne room. And not by the blood of someone else or something else, but by his own blood. Enjoy that. Savor that. That's the exhortation. Consider that it was his love that compelled him to shed his own blood, his love for his Father and his holy name, his love for his own fame and his love for us. And then also consider, when you consider how you can enjoy his work, consider the image of him seated and enjoy that. Savor that. See Christ seated and see the next time he gets up as when he returns on a white horse. But see his saving work as finished. He earned it. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Here's the exhortation. He wants worshipers. When Christ sat and talked with the Samaritan woman, in John chapter 4, he talked with her and you know, she said, Hey, uh, you seem to be a holy man. Are we going to worship on this mountain or that mountain? He said, Hey, the Father's looking for worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. Bottom line, he's not looking for practitioners. He's looking for people that are blown away by this. He's not looking for people that have perfect attendance at church. He's not looking for people that did a great job in Leviticus chapter 1 through 5 and 16. Man, that guy really did a good job with that that guilt offering. That was flawless. He's looking for people that savor the work of Christ. That's a worshiper. He's not looking for practitioners. He's looking for worshipers to leave you with one passage john chapter 6 this is what this is about to me this is where it should leave us in exhortation this is where i want to land jesus has just walked on the water he's crossed over the sea of galilee and he's gone to capernaum and the guys if you remember where this falls out jesus had just fed the multitudes on the other side of the sea of galilee and they all show up over there in capernaum he's like hey man you guys are just here for lunch He says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, this chapter 6, verse 26, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled, because you had your belly filled. That's why you're here. Don't work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. So they said, okay, if we're not supposed to work for food, what are we supposed to do, Jesus? They said to him, what shall we do? so that we may work the works of God. And here's what Jesus said. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the... Thank you for that the. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's what we're about, folks. We're about being worshipers that savor and enjoy Christ. We're about being worshipers that believe in Christ and cast everything that we are on his finished work. We're about people that enjoy his substitution. We're about people that appreciate that he bore our wrath, propitiation. And we're about people that see his work and go, that's perfect. That's perfect, and that's enough for me. His work was sufficient. You ought to realize that we have fellowship with the Father And access to the Father that people ached for for ages. People ached for that for ages. And it has been achieved through the finished work of Christ. That's perfect. Let me pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for this um, image of the finished work of Christ. And, uh, Lord, I'm thankful for, we are thankful for the perfecting or the perfect work of Christ. And we look forward to engaging this next week at the perfecting work of Christ. And um, we count his work sufficient. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.